All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I I recognize, I'm going to read this verse and and just let it speak for itself for a moment. And I'm probably going to recognize that for some of you this morning, um, it's possible you've never sat through a teaching on this verse. It's possible. Uh, Because it probably has got a lot of stuff that's a little hard to understand in it. Uh, It can be a little bit challenging. And, and it may sit in some controversial categories in some ways. And so it would not be unusual for pastors who don't just go right through the Bible, verse after verse, to avoid this verse for a number of reasons. And yet we travel through the Bible and this is the next verse. And so if I bring up something and you're going like, oh, I can't believe this dude's talking about that. Okay, well, first, this dude's not talking about it. The Bible is talking about it. And so we can't avoid it if we're going to read the Bible and we don't kind of chop these parts out. But there is some tough stuff to understand in here. So even as I'm reading through it, maybe mentally circle in your mind words and concepts that you're going, "Mm, I don't get that. Mm, Wait a minute. Does that really mean what it just said? Circle those, because we should interact with the Bible that way. But let's read this, and I'll share some thoughts before we get into taking it apart. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair... It is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, Father, we are grateful. We are people trying to make our way through life with its complexities, with its many questions, with its difficulties. And you have given us your word to bring truth to bear on everything that we are. Lord, so this word has something to say to us today that matters. And so, Lord, no matter where we're coming from, this word has has existed 
long before most of the things that are bugging us in this category. You have spoken these words. Lord, help us now to hear them and to receive from them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, there's there's a topic here. I think I named this message on headship and head coverings. Uh, But there's a lesson here as well in how to interact with the Bible. How to read the Bible. How to understand the Bible. You know, at some point, regardless of where you are in your faith, you probably were a person asking questions about, you know, how do you take the Bible? You know, do, do you take the whole Bible literally? Do you apply every part of it? Does everything mean the same thing? Does this still bear true for us like it did all these years ago? At some point, you should be asking those kinds of questions. That that doesn't make you an ungodly person to ask those kinds of questions. The, the, The Bible is a book that's written and it's got certain nuances to it that, that we do need to learn some of those things to understand. But what I want to make sure we capture in this passage would be true in many passages is that we observe a book written in a certain time frame, a certain moment. We observe practices in the Bible. And I want to make sure that we distinguish appropriately between practices and principles. Because you will treat some of those in a little bit different of a way. Right? I think everybody gets this. Um, and, but if you mistake this, you can end up strangely interacting with all kinds of parts of the Bible. Right? You know, years ago, there, there's a principle. And I think it's a biblical principle, actually. I'm not going to use it because it's that. But there's a principle that all of us get. Everybody here has got to go to work if you want your family to have its needs met. Everybody gets that? Is there anybody who's thinking, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to be the one family that doesn't do the work thing. No, no, that's a principle that touches every family, every household has got to have a work aspect to making it happen, getting provision into your life. But the way that you go to work, the practice of working might change from time to time. And some of us have lived through massive changes in this, right? I remember growing up, my dad left at the same time every day to go to work. He got home at the same time every day from work. He left in a white shirt, jacket, full suit with a tie on that he took that white shirt to the cleaners every week all those and they were stacked up and bundled together and he wore those every day with his tie and he left at a certain time and he got home at a certain time and that was work you know as a kid dad where are you going going to work all right so there's work there's my first definition for work so what do I do today when the dude who works for google uh he may not even go to work today. He's going to sit in his pajamas and open up his laptop. And he's going to sit there and get some kind of work done. And that's going to be him, quote, going to work. No, absolutely. That's not work. I don't know what that is. Dude, you're in your pajamas, man. All right. So I could respond in all kinds of ways because maybe I grew up and that wasn't familiar to me. But in that simple observation, is an example of there are principles and there are practices. And when you and I come to the scripture, sometimes that's what we are interacting with, principles and practices, right? So in your outline, I put the practice here is covering one's head when praying 
or prophesying as a statement or an expression of submission to the principle of being under authority. Right? So that's the practice that's in this passage. And then there's a principle. That principle in this, practice, in this passage is headship. The principle of headship. The understanding that all of us are under authority. Right? So I think I wrote this out in your outline. Here's my, my opinion. Both of these are present in this passage. They are related... But they each have unique elements, some that are connected to culture, some that transcend culture. We may agree or disagree in how culture contributes or does not contribute to the way that these are relevant to us today. Commentators will agree and disagree on some of these nuances. Um, these would be an example, I'm just going to make this point briefly, but these would be examples of, you know, we talk about hills to die on around here, that there are certain things that are hills to die on, that we will not, if you don't agree on those hills, we will, we will not come into agreement with you, and, and we won't even afford much of an opportunity for that to be a legitimate other position. And then there are other things in the Bible that are not hills to die on. Right, so you could be here this morning with your own view of how you've arrived at a woman's place for head coverings. By the way, this is a passage about men's head coverings as well. You may or may not be in agreement with somebody else that's here. This would be a category of don't die on that hill. Don't make too big a deal out of that. It's here, it's in scripture, and there's something to, to learn from. However, I would say the issue of headship is a hill to die on. And there are two different issues here. There's headship in this passage. There's head coverings in this passage. So I'm going to take a moment uh, for a number of reasons that I won't explain to walk through the head covering dimension. And I'm going to read a lot for you here because uh, what what is very helpful in looking at what's in this context in the passage is the cultural context from which it comes. Because even as we read through that, I'm sure you're reading some things it was like what's wrong with short hair and why what does it mean why is it disgraceful they have you should have been asking all kinds of questions because this stuff isn't in modern day america it doesn't feel this way it's not in our setting this way and maybe you've never learned it so i'm gonna give us a bunch of background here and i will try mostly read just to, to save us from some time but let's back up to verse four this head covering was there practice and Paul unpacks it in these few verses verse 4 to 6 he says every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head were shaven if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut her hair off or short But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, so something's happening in this passage that men shouldn't, uh, women should, and and somehow shaven short hair is disgraceful. All right, more than likely, you have not lived in a context where you go, well, of course, this is why, of course, I get that. More than likely, you look at that and you go, what's the deal? Okay, well, we kind of need to learn what's the deal. So let's visit a couple of commentators here on what they think is happening here. 
John MacArthur says, Admittedly, the detail of this passage related to head coverings is difficult because of the scarcity of historical data. But the content helps to clarify the principle, the principle Paul has in mind. Whatever the special covering may have been, which is disputed, he wants the church to live according to divine standards. When Paul said a man, quote, disgraces his head if he has something on his head while praying or prophesying, he had to be referring to local Corinthian custom. The phrase, quote, has something on his head literally means having down from head. And is usually taken to refer to a veil. The context here implies that in Corinth, such a head covering would have been completely ridiculous for a man and completely proper for a woman. The apostle is not laying down a universal principle that Christian women should always worship with their heads covered. Wayne Grudem, who has done some rather extensive study in this category for a number of reasons, brings some insights that are very helpful. He says, Paul is concerned about head covering because it is an outward symbol of something else. But the meaning of such a symbol will vary according to how people in a given culture understand it. It would be wrong to require the same symbol today if it carried a completely different meaning. People have thought that head covering for women in the first century was a symbol of a a woman being in submission to her husband or perhaps to the elders of the church. B, being a woman rather than a man. C, being a wife rather than an unmarried woman. Or D, having authority to pray and prophesy publicly in the church. So we should ask whether wearing a head covering symbolizes any of these things today. At least in 21st century America, it symbolizes none of these things. When people see a woman wearing a hat, whether in church or outside of church, they don't immediately think, oh, I know that woman is subject to her husband because I see that she's wearing a hat. Or, oh, I now realize that woman is a woman and not a man because she's wearing a hat. Or, oh, I know that woman is married, not single, because she's wearing a hat. Or, I now recognize that woman has authority to pray and prophesy in the church because she's wearing a hat. Whatever we think a head covering symbolized in the first century Corinth, it does not symbolize the same thing today. The very fact that it does not symbolize much of anything to people today, even to Christians, is a strong argument that Paul would not have wanted us to follow it as a sort of meaningless symbol. I think it also means that God himself does not intend us to follow this practice today in a society and culture where it carries no symbolic meaning. Paul Carter ventures into this category a little bit. Helpful again, quoting J.I. Packer. He says, in that culture, the way to look like a married woman was to cover your head. Excuse me. That's what married women did. The goal then for modern readers is not to run out and, and buy a stola. It is to translate the principle into a modern context and application. J.I. Packer says, the biblical revelation was given in terms of Eastern culture, environment, and thought forms, all very different from our modern industrial Western world, and it has to be translated into modern terms before men can fully grasp its relevance. But she isn't wearing a hat, probably. A hat in our culture doesn't say, I'm a married woman. It says, I'm having a bad hair day. Or it's incredibly cold in here, or I grew up in the South. 
The goal does not the goal is not to reproduce first century Eastern cultural norms. That's that's always a careful admonition as we read the Bible. Because it is observing the revelation of God in a particular context, and you have to discern did God intend for us to replicate that context? The goal is to submit to the spirit of the passage. So here, here's a reality in this regard. You know, culture, culture speaks a language. And we know this, right? We recognize it. Some of us have watched the language change over years. And that culture then takes that language and provides definitions for it. You almost got to look those definitions up into the cultural setting in which they're being used. Right? You know, there was a day in many of our lives that we might remember that the word cool actually had to do with temperature. <laughs> right? So when it comes to you now says something, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But that looks cool. Boy, you're really cool. Right? I mean, it's like, what's that got to do with temperature? Well, nothing, right? Chill. Chill used to have to do with temperature as well, right? But all of a sudden, now that gets used a certain way, and it gets, you know, now it's your way, hey, calm down, will you? Chill. Right? And we know what that means because we're in touch with what the culture is speaking. So, so there, are, there are elements of this in dress, in accessories, in, in you know, ear piercing means different things in different parts of the world. So, you know, to pick up a Western view of ear piercing from 40 years ago. If you were a man and you had an ear pierced, you better have the correct one pierced. Because the right and the left meant something different. It meant something. You were making a statement when you did that. I'm not sure that statement is still prevalent in our culture today and it was never prevalent in other cultures around the world so these are things that we learn there's aspects of of hairstyle that has made statements that no longer are making statements that never made statements in other parts of the world these are dimensions of the the culture communicates and then the bible comes into that culture and it happens to be talking about topics that transcend culture and, and when it moves through them, it's going to pick up some of the language of the culture and it's going to use it. So, you know, today, if, if we were to recognize, uh, how can someone tell that you're married? Right? That's a cultural thing. Not every culture wears rings. But we do. And it's part of the wedding ceremony. And it's something that we identify, that we are making a statement to everybody, that we are bound to another person. Uh, one of the things that's be very important, and this is part of this cultural discussion, is your ring says, I am not available. And, you know, in a very promiscuous society, that's a very helpful thing to be stating. Uh, in any society, though, There is a differentiation between whether you are and whether you're not. And there's nothing wrong with being available to marriage, for instance. And it would be appropriate for you to do things that would let others know that you are available. So women in various cultures would have wanted to make that statement. They're young women wanting to be married. They don't want to go out in public and look like she's married, stay away from her. No, they want to look like I'm available. 
Not available even in a corrupt sense, just available to be married. So all these things, well, how would you let them know? You wear a sign over your head? Well, you know, you don't wear a veil. There would be things that you would do that would communicate, and people knew exactly what that meant by that. In the same way that when you wear this ring, our culture knows. And there's a little bit of trouble in this verse. I'll read through a couple of these thoughts here in just a second. But, you know, you guys, you guys know, if you walk in with, you know, you guys are more likely to do this. So, you know, guys are, you know, you got your buds and you're hanging out together and, you know, you do life together and you notice that your bud went off the other night without his wedding ring on. Oh, okay. But then you notice certain times he does that regularly. What would you think about that? You... You'd probably ask him, hey, dude, what's up? He hadn't said anything, and you don't even know what he's doing. But that ring coming off his hand and him going out in public is making a statement to you. And you're trying to figure out what that means. All right, so you understand how culture speaks? Symbols speak, practices speak. Well, that's what's happening here. Bruce Winter, who has done some pretty extensive research on Corinth in particular, but on first century Corinth in this area... Read this quickly. He says, The marriage ceremony involved what was called in Greek veiling the bride. Both Tacitus and Juvenal describe the taking of the veil of a bride as one of the essential components of marriage. It was the social indicator by which the marital status of a woman was made clear to everyone. So Paul did not use a generic term to refer to women of indeterminate marital status, but the combining of the two terms, veil and woman, indicates that she was married. The widow would no longer wear the marriage veil. Paul's initial discussion of this issue also seems to rule against translating the term woman without reference to her marital status. Right? So that's why translators are going to translate wife here, although it's not clear because that word gets used elsewhere for woman. So, but this, this is why the reasoning in the translation that we have today. The head of every man is Christ, he states... He does not argue that the head of every woman in the Christian gathering is the minister, but rather that the head of every wife is the husband. Because any reference connecting a woman and a veil would immediately alert a first century reader to the fact that she was a married woman. There are secure grounds for concluding that the issue here was married women praying and prophesying without their veil in the Christian meeting. So, again, these are historical uh, hypotheses. Is this absolutely what was happening there? Uh, that's a pretty good guess. I, I think it's a pretty good guess. But it appears that in Corinth, something else is happening here besides just, oops, forgot my veil. Um, and there's other things going on in the culture here that become very important to understand. It seems as though Paul is interacting, because the Corinthians made statements with what they did. That's just kind of what they were. Right? That's why we have so many things that get corrected in this letter. Were there a group of women who were seeking to make a statement by intentionally removing their veil and praying and prophesying in public? Well, there is some decent evidence that, that there was a movement afoot here in this time as well. Bruce Winter goes on and says, a new kind of wife was emerging at this time in the Roman world. One who rebelled against the cultural milieu that allowed husbands, but not wives, to be sexually promiscuous. Right? Commonly understood 
A man got married to that woman for a particular reason, primarily for social standing and for having children, but he pleasured himself outside of that, and that was commonly understood. And and the social settings were created to allow for that, to invigorate that, but the woman could never do something like that. So there's a little bit of a hashtag me too moment going on right here where women are saying, hey, 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 what's up with that? Uh, no, I don't think so. That's not acceptable anymore. Hey, if you can do it, so can we. All right, so this is, this is catching some ground. One way in which such wives would flaunt that freedom was by removing their veils. So a Christian wife should not deliberately remove her veil while praying or prophesying during a time of corporate worship because that would contentiously identify her with these other promiscuous women. So this is a moment where other things are happening in this setting that are not just a matter of did you have the veil on or not. There's some other elements that are taking place here. Winter goes on and says this, Paul made a startling statement about the unveiled wife. This will clarify some of the language here. He said that her behavior was, quote, one of the same thing as a woman who has been shorn. It is known that in Cyprus, the law prescribed that a woman guilty of adultery shall have her hair cut off and be a prostitute. Like a foreigner or freed woman who provided sexual favors at a dinner. There was an entire subculture of women in that time who were there to pleasure men. I mean, we call them prostitutes today, but it was a little bit more involved in that. And so you could be a guy married, but you went to a special dinner tonight and provided for you was going to be a, a woman was going to be provided to you to do sexual favors for you and you would know who she is because she wouldn't be wearing a veil she would have her head shorn she'd have her hair cut off she was being identified that hey this is what i do right so that was again clear statement therefore paul equated not wearing a veil with the social stigma of a publicly exposed and punished adulteress reduced to the status of a prostitute Even more surprising is Paul's imperative. If a woman is not veiled, she must also be shorn. An adulterous wife would be shorn or have her head shaved as a punishment intended to humiliate her publicly. He was, in effect, accusing the Christian wife who removed her veil when praying and prophesying of parading like one of the profligate new Roman women. If she did this while participating in a leading way in an open meeting, then she publicly dishonored her husband and ought to bear the public stigma. Paul then argued the converse, that if it was shameful for a wife to be shorn or shaven, then the only alternative was for her to wear the marriage veil. So this is a pretty decent rebuilding of what's going on in Corinth when Paul is having to step in and speak to these issues. Certainly, let me, let me just say this, because I, I recognize in jumping into this passage or being dragged into the passage by the Apostle Paul, uh, this is a can of worms, isn't it? Right? And can I just say, you know, having been a pastor now for a number of years, it would not have been as big a can of worms when I first started being a pastor as it is today. Because of the whole gender issue, because of the whole uh, women and men issue, and the way it's playing out 
in our culture. So this becomes a, a challenging thing to get our mind around. And I, I am not going to do justice to answering all the concerns that sit in this category. Right? There, are, there are real concerns in this category. Right? The hashtag MeToo movement is trying to address legitimate concerns. There have been real abuses of authority and influence in our culture by men. That's just flat true. And so there's this response against it. Yeah, that's right. That should be responded. These are wrong things that have been done. But but here's the problem sometimes when we hitch our train to what's moving through our culture. Is you're going to get dragged into places that you really didn't intend to go. You're going to get dragged into aspects of that argument and that disagreement that are going to violate some things that God actually says are good. I've used this illustration before and it's kind of like if I had a big... 15 foot stick up here and and I I just you know I'm paying attention to the front of this thing and I see some bad ideas and they're legitimately bad ideas and I'm going to go over here and smash these bad ideas one after another that's bad that's bad that's bad and I'm totally not paying attention to behind me I am knocking the entire stage over here I'm, I'm killing some things that need to be killed but I'm knocking over all kinds of stuff that should never have been knocked over listen as a Christian Be careful what you choose to yoke yourself to that's part of the cultural cause these days. You you may be feeling like, hey, yeah, I've got some real issues with the way in which men and women and the way in which opportunities are afforded and who plays what role and how that's been misdone. Hey, those are legitimate issues. Those are absolutely legitimate issues. Be careful who's speaking for you in that category. Be careful who you're following in that category. Listen, politics is even worse than this, isn't it? I mean, I know you got your political favorites because they happen to line up with a few views that you have in a few categories that matter to you. But but can I tell you, it's a very confusing thing for a Christian to stand up and act like Donald Trump is something amazing. I find that difficult. I might agree with some of his policies and he might be the best of the worst choices. But he's a problematic individual in all kinds of ways. So before I go yoking my train to him and get dragged wherever he goes, because you know the more you identify with him, the more you're in the evening news next week for stuff you're kind of like, oh my gosh, no, no, he didn't do that. He didn't say that. Did he? Oh, oh. Dude, don't you know I've identified with you? I've got you tattooed right here. Oh. <laughs> it's like, be careful. Remember, you're yoked to Jesus Christ. You make a statement about him. And anytime your political involvement or your view of a hot cultural item begins to drag the gospel into disrepair, that's a massive problem. You are out of bounds. Out of bounds as a Christian. Your primary concern is to be light for the gospel in this world before you fall in love with a cause. Although I'm not against falling in love with a cause. There might be some very good causes to be a part of. 
So th- this is an interesting moment here. What is to not be lost is as this moment embraces analyzing how public identification was taking place, how public statements of wearing head coverings was, was, was taking place, there's another principle here that must not be lost. It transcends culture. It is having to do with how God created some things. And that principle, I love the way Andy Nacelli said this. He says, this is what happens sometimes in these moments. And the church is the ones who lead the way in this. He says, some so focus on background information that they end up foregrounding what is in the background and backgrounding what is in the foreground. So let's make this all about head coverings. Let's make it all about what you wear or don't wear on your head. Let's make it all about that. And then when you come in, whether you're right or whether you're wrong or whether that's long enough or whether you did or whether you didn't, while we're overlooking the principle of do we believe anything about submitting to authority? Do we believe anything about that? Because that's what Paul stops and he installs this principle which is as true for American Christians today as it was for Corinthian Christians, right? In verse 3, this didn't come and go. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. That's still true today as much as it's ever been true. The head of a wife is her husband. That's still true today as much as it's ever been true. And the head of Christ is God. That's still true today as much as it's ever been true. Now, do you understand when I read it that way, you quickly realize if you want to blow up one of these, you've got to blow them all up. Because Paul tucked them all together. When Paul goes to make his presentation here, he sees all these things as an expression of the same principle. So you'd be messing with the Godhead in one moment. You'd be messing with man and Christ in the next moment. Just to do what? To adjust the idea that women have to submit to their husbands? That You want to blow up all that? Now do you recognize this is, this is how we read the Bible carefully? If I read the Bible carefully... All those things are related. So before I go to mess with one, I've got to realize if I mess with one, I'm messing with them all. But what about men who abuse? What about, okay, that's a different question. Let's answer that question separately. That's kind of like pulling this discussion into you know, the marriage conversation. And you know, when we talk about what does the Bible teach about uh, divorce? And we move the subject to, well, what about difficulty in marriage? What about my relatives who had a horrible marriage? They stayed married, but man, he was abusive and he was this and he was that. Hey, that's a separate question. We do need to talk about it and it needs to be touched and it needs to change and it needs to be guided and it needs to be affected. But do you want to know what the Bible says about divorce? That's a separate question. When we pull all these other issues into these questions, we, we make them so confusing that we can't end up with anything except emotions that come out of it. So there's some legitimate stuff here in this category of headships. Let's just explore this principle together. What does it mean to be the head? Right? This Greek word kephale, it's used 75 times just to refer to your, your noggin, your head, your brain, that thing on top of your shoulders. 
But metaphorically, in the same way that your head, brain, and your thinking is, is that which has a special function for the body, that's why this thing gets used this way, there is a headship dimension. And that metaphor is translated the head, superior, chief, principal, one to whom others are subordinate. So in the Greek language and in the New Testament, but also in Greek literature, that's how that word would be getting used that is now being picked up and used in scripture. I think this is very much about a principle. It has to do with authority. Authority. That's a massively important word. As a matter of fact, it was one of our vocabulary words we started the year with. Because it is a massively important word that is being neglected. Now, here's where you see this, right? Even in this passage here, verse 10. A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Right? So this headship dimension has to do with authority. Now, quite honestly, the translation there begs a little help. Right? There, there, there is no word for symbol in that. She should have authority on her. That's kind of what it more clearly says. She should have authority on her. Now, whether it's a symbol on her head or not, that word gets introduced, actually. But there is to be a a representation that you are representing a person under authority. That's what's trying to be said here. So the context lends itself to headship is related to authority. Craig Blumberg, in his commentary, says, The other passage in which Paul calls a man head over a woman refers as well to wives' subordination to their husbands in Ephesians 5. So... Authority seems somewhat more likely here too. So this is a verse that's relating to authority. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church. So this concept that there are heads. There is a headship among us is something that's clearly in the scriptures. There are some who have argued that these verses, because the New Testament presents, just like it presents our bodies are all our body, there is this sense that, well, when you differentiate between men and women this way, you make one inferior to the other. Well, be careful what you do with that. Is the remedy to that... Don't do any differentiating then. Is that the remedy to that? Be careful because that is the reasoning. You you associate differentiation with a problematic dimension. And it is problematic to make any human being made in the image of God to think that they're inferior to another human being who's been made in the image of God. So biblically, I got a problem with that. So we create a concept, I mean, this inferiority, this see what happens, you see what happens, and, and when we say the reason why it happened is because there's differentiation. Uh, that's wrong. That's just bad thinking on the one hand, but it's unbiblical on the other. Because you force God into this role that God could not make any differentiation, but yet he did. And then how different can they be? The the dignity is that that we are all God's creation as human beings. In the same way that Paul's going to transfer the same thought into chapter 12 when he starts talking about how the body functions. The same spirit gives gifts to different members to function in different ways. But we're all members and we can't say one's not necessary and one's more important than the other. Right? Remember this conversation we're about to get into? It's the same thought. 
But in that body, when this member functions differently than this member functions, there's differentiation. This one doesn't get to do what this one gets to do. That's fact. Now, when I pull that into the men-women category, today, there was a day when men don't get to do what women get to do and women don't get to do what men get to do. There was a day in which everybody was like, duh. Yeah. Today, that's not, that's not allowable. That's not acceptable. We're supposed to be able to do everything that each other does. And we're doing everything in our power to make that happen. But the Bible then turns around and uses an illustration. He says, you know what? There's dignity then. Every member is a part of the body. And none of them are more important than another. And there's a head, by the way. And that head plays a unique role for all the members of the body. So this principle, it traffics all throughout scripture. But some folks who have gotten uncomfortable with that have said, well, maybe that word kephale shouldn't be translated head. Maybe it should be translated source, origin. Now, I just will tell you this. If you just take the word source and every time you find the word head, stick source in there, you will create a nightmare theologically. You will have strange things being the source of strange things, right? But Craig Blomberg uh, comments, he says, up until the last few years, almost everybody who argued for source still did so with a hierarchical framework. That is to say, even if Paul is talking only about origins in verse 3, he does so to set up his subsequent commands about honoring those in authority over us. That's where this verse is going to traffic. It's going to land in. What are we doing with those who are our head in some way? They have a role of authority in our lives. What are we doing with that? That's where this is going to land, right? Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is in second rank to the Father here. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He's the head of that authority. Jesus Christ is the head of that authority. So if there's authority over us and you and I pull on that cord of whatever's over us, at some point when you pull it long enough, you go back to Jesus Christ who has the ultimate head and the ultimate bearer of all authority. Right? That's where that goes. So headship... Not head covering is a creation ordinance. It's part of God's purpose in creation. Why do I say that? Because that's how Paul's going to explain the idea that we even pay attention to this. Right? Verse 7, chapter 11. Here's how Paul jumps into an explanation. He says, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God of God, but woman is the glory of man. Where do we get that image language from? Right? This is coming from Genesis and God's original creation. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is a creation order. Right? So God creates Adam out of the dust of the ground. God forms and makes Adam. And then out of Adam, God creates Eve. He did that differently on purpose. Right? You do recognize, it wasn't like God ran out of dirt. Right? I mean, God's not in the garden. It's like, oh, shoo, man. Oh, I wish I'd have thought about that before I used all the dirt up on Adam. Uh, I guess I'll just take a piece of Adam and make him. This is not how God did this. Neither was man created 
for woman, but woman for man. All right, so there's a differentiation here. Right? In the moment of creation, God creates Adam and, and gives him this assignment and task that he orients himself toward. Then out of Adam, God creates woman and points her at Adam. All right, so we don't have any history. Nobody's protested anything yet. <laughs> All we have is the creation story. However, when Paul goes to explain these things, that's what he reaches back to get his insights from. How many of you guys get that Paul doesn't treat that story like it was just some random chance, meaningless event? You know, quite honestly, Paul explains, uh, if this had been done on Tuesday rather than Wednesday, it would have been reversed. You know, he created the woman first, and then he created man. It's just, I mean, it's just a random thing. God just did this random thing. It's meaningless. We're all people. No, no, no. Paul treats it like, no, it's meaningful. It matters that the God of the universe did this thing in a particular way. And what he did speaks to the Corinthians and it speaks to us. It's not a cultural thing. It's a biblical thing. And this isn't the last time Paul will use that creation setting to explain but he's going to do that again in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Won't take this apart at all. But he says, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. This, this is how Paul explains a similar issue of headship in the church. Of how authority functions in the church. He goes back to the original. He said, God had something in mind when he made them this way. Alright, so listen, if you're trying to be a man today, or you're trying to be a woman today, the creation story is speaking to you. The creator did something intentional. That's a good thing. And if the world has taught us, either through its propaganda, or through its misuse of something, that it's not a good thing, well, the world stands wrong. Which isn't new, is it? That's not a new concept for any of us. Paul says, I want you to understand. And then he starts to explain headship. So I'm going to paraphrase that and say, everything has a head that is to be honored. I want you to understand that. Everything, every person has a head that is to be honored. I want you to understand that. That's what's really at stake here. It's not about whether you wear a veil, whether your hair is long enough. Or the, no, what's at stake here is whether or not you recognize that what exists in this world is authority that came from somewhere. And it's been given in a particular way to people. And those people are in your life. And you are to honor them. That's what's at stake here. And eventually, you, like I said, you pulled this back. It goes back to the creator. Even in this passage here, verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man. So man is now born of woman. But all things are from God. So we, we may have some interplay here as members of this body that we do some things among us as men and women. But ultimately, the authority we are under is God's authority. So, 
know, when you blow off the lower level authority, essentially what you're blowing off is the upper level authority. And then again, Paul did this. I'm not doing this. Don't, don't think, oh, that's the key. Twist this thing up, man. I didn't say this. Paul said this. He said this goes back to God. And it's a matter of authority. Right, let me give you one long quote, but very helpful. And it'll help keep me from saying too much. In the context of verses 3 to 7, it's hard to escape the feeling that Paul intended to speak of a hierarchy in verses 9-2. On the other hand, verses 3 and 11 and 12, which I just read there, radically redefine that hierarchy in ways that should render it unobjectionable. Right? So we recognize, we don't like hierarchies. I don't like anybody thinking they're the boss of me. How many guys know that somebody needs to be the boss of me? All right, don't amen that too strong, but do you know that about yourself? <laughs> Somebody needs to be my boss. Not a good idea for me to be it. If verse 3 suggests that the authority of a husband over his wife parallels that of God over Christ, then certainly one is struck by the mutuality of the relationship far more than by any act of subordination. Still, both are present. Anybody run around thinking, oh, you know, I was going to pray to Jesus, but, you know, he's, he's such second rate. Uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm going to go over his head. Does anybody think that way? But he does subject himself to the Father, right? As you see here, the historic Orthodox view of the Trinity supported by the New Testament involves ontological equality, equality of essence or being, Combined with functional subordination. Functional subordination. Same being, but functioning differently. Submission within role differentiation. Christ emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine attributes in the incarnation. Right? That's Philippians chapter 2. Jesus is going to become, if you will, a lesser role in the universe. But even before he took on human flesh, the Father had to send him. We know this is true. No scripture ever speaks of the Son sending or commanding the Father. And even after Christ's resurrection and exaltation, Paul speaks of the day when, quote, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Jesus himself can declare without any sense of contradiction that the Father is greater than I. And I and the Father are one. And there is no evidence that any human society or any Christian community has ever functioned successfully without de facto, if not duly recognized authorities to whom others submit. Most Christians regularly experience situations in which they submit to authorities with whom they believe they are essentially equal. Equal in being. Equal in glorifying God. But differentiated by roles. That God instituted and made them different. This this is not a small teaching. And I know in our, in our, our, our culture is so loud on this, pushing back on so much about this. And sometimes it's doing it because of abuse, neglect, issues that are legit. Let's put these over here and say, hey, man, we've got to talk about this. Because that's a legitimate problem. 
But, but this rejection, this resistance to something. You know, remember in creation, this creation moment is, is so important. In this creation moment, nothing exists. Nothing exists. God starts from scratch. He doesn't rebuild a broken down house. He doesn't use anybody else's building materials. There's not a scratch of ideas that he has to borrow from somebody else. They're all his ideas. So he creates something. And this is, this is how arrogant, I mean, even for me to explain this. I think God had a good idea. You understand for me to even say that is laughable. That this little creature, this little that's Keith on a planet Earth. Nobody can even hear it. That's me. What did he just say? The angel's like, what did he just say? He said, God had a good idea. <laughs> like he would know. <laughs> so God has this idea. I'm going to create human beings. I'm going to create more than one of them. That's going to be a problem. <laughs> I'll make them different. I'll make them play different roles. I'll call this one to do that and this one to do that. Listen, everybody here would be cool with this in some ways, right? If I were to say, hey, God made men to have the morning shift and women have the night shift. All right, that works. Somebody's got to do it. But what about God makes one to be the head? Oh, no, no. I'm not all right with that. Uh, that's, nah, that's not good. Listen, I'm, I'm not a morning person, so I'm not all right with being made the morning guy, okay? So there's all of us that got reasons why we don't like this thing. But at the end of the day, God created. And then God turns to his squeaky little creatures and say, are you talking to me? Uh, and who are you again that you're telling me how to do this? Let me just read these questions to you and then I'm going to read passages that sound exactly like that. So here's our reality. God has assigned different roles and ways that his glory is revealed through us. Is that okay with me? I'm just trying to get us there slowly. God comes along and says, I want different things to glorify me in different ways. Flowers and cows and fish and men and women. God just differentiated them in all kinds of ways that they might glorify the creator. Is that okay with me? God alone originates authority. There is no authority that any human being inherently has. We just don't have the rank to do that. To have any form of authority, you have to get it from somewhere outside of yourself. And then God delegates authority to humanity in different ways. Is that okay with me? Husbands and wives have been delegated differing authority. Parents and children have been delegated different authority. Elders and church members have been delegated different authority. Bosses and employees 
have been delegated different authorities. Civil governments and citizens have been delegated different authorities. This is all God's doing. Romans 13 says all authority that has been established has been established by God. But what about all those who abuse it? It's a good point. Let's put it over here. And let's come back to that one. And let's talk about it because it's a problem. But do we just want to know what God has said? Or do we just want to silence what God has said by another problem? That's a problem. It is a problem. But God has said something to us. And ultimately this passage is about what am I going to do with the authority that God has placed in my life? What am I going to do with that? And I need to be careful that, you know, while the culture's over here crushing stuff, it's not smashing all the great things that God said about authority that exists. And the humble impact that when you and I encounter real authority, the impact it has on us and how that would make a bunch of people be able to do life together. You pull authority out, you confuse authority, you mess authority up, you mess all that stuff up. There's, there's nothing that doesn't work better than you can't tell me what to do. Listen, you know, one of the hardest marital counseling moments that we ever have is when one of the spouses stops being submitted to Christ. It's like, can't help you. Can't help you. Because you are no longer a person under authority. And God designed human beings to live under authority. And no relationship works when you're not under authority. None of them do. Chaos ensues. So God wisely puts authority into our lives. And this is how he treats it, right? Quick rundown through these verses. This is humbling. Eric, you can come back up here. Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, might God have something really good for us in this category that are just different than the way human beings would conceptualize good? There's a moment in which this right of God to do things the way he wants comes to play out in Romans chapter 9. It's it's a hard verse to unpack and I won't get around it. But at some moment, verse 19 says, you will say this. You will say to me then, why does he find fault? Who can resist his will? Right. So at some point, God has done something that makes humanity stand back and go, well, if that's the way it is, well, who can... Who can say anything about that? Who can resist? That's what God does. God picks up not so much on answering the question as much as correcting the attitude. Have you ever read Romans chapter 9 and you're looking for an answer for the sovereign election of God? You're not going to find much of an answer for the sovereign election of God. What you're going to find is a rebuke that you dare find trouble with God for having done it that way. So if you can't figure it out, Welcome to being human. But if you raise your voice to God and say, what is wrong with you that you did that that way? God turns back and says this. Wait, who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God? 
What's molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I'm the potter. If I decide this vessel does this and this vessel does that, you may not like it and you may not like being one of those vessels, but you don't have any grounds to take issue with me. I'm the creator. It is in my power to do exactly what I did. Romans is quoting Isaiah and Isaiah and being the prophet that he is he's a, he's a bit more edgy as he speaks God's voice Isaiah 45 says woe to him who strives with him who formed him a pot among pots that's what Isaiah says look the pots are talking back look at all the pots I mean y'all go into a ceramic store and there's pots everywhere and you're kind of like Oh, that one's got an attitude. That one's wondering why he ain't that one. That one's wondering why he's on that shelf and not on this shelf. And then look at the complaint. Oh my gosh, he's holding a sign. He's protesting. What? Isaiah looks at that and goes, you're just pots. Not even sure what pots sound like when you speak, but you're just a pot. says, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed you, I formed you, ask me of things to come. Will you command me? Really? Is that how this works concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. God stands and says, I don't even know if you're welcome to an opinion. You're a pot. I did what in all my perfection was the right perfect thing to do. I made Adam first. I made Eve out of Adam. I gave them different roles to play. No one in my eyes was less than the other one. They had different duties and responsibilities in order for my glory to be proclaimed. Pots. Just be pots. Stop trying to be creators. All right, so here's the principle. The principle is about my relationship to the authority that God has put in his creation. And that's an equally true issue for every person here, whether you're a man or a woman. You have a head. You answer to someone. You have someone to look to and to honor with your life. So before you do X, Y, or Z, have a goal. You're going to self-determine. You're you're going to make something happen with your life. Before you do any of that, how is God's authority interacting with that? That's the principle. That's the issue. You can wear something on your head or not wear something on your head and get that totally wrong. Known lots of women who believe in submission. <laughs> who are running things like puppet masters. It's like you just can't see their hands, but they're pulling all the strings and everything is under their control. Oh, and by the way, 
I know, I know men who live their lives like Christ is not the head. You do whatever the hell you want. You don't look to him. Listen, these things are all related too, by the way. Uh, but can I make another argument for us to get to later? Well, what if my husband leads poorly? All right, let's get to that over here. That's a separate subject. This does not, that does not undo whether or not he's your head. It makes it hard and it's complicated. And there's all kinds of issues that we need to get talked through there. But that's not the answer. To, does the Bible teach this? It does teach this. The question is, what am I going to do with this? And do I value this? Let's stand up together. Lord, help us. Lord, help us right now in this moment. There's a lot of us here this morning. So we got a lot of stories in this room. I want to pray for your grace among us. Lord, there's some people who are, are they're new to the Bible. They're new to hearing some of this. And Lord, I, I pray for a special grace for them here this morning that this just doesn't freak them out and sound like, what the heck? Because they're in a room with people who have heard this many times. And it feels different than being introduced to it. And so, Lord, would there be grace for those that are here this morning that just don't feel comfortable? Their questions outweigh their confidence. And, Lord, that's understandable. Would you help them, Lord? Help them to start down a road, Lord. Help them to be humble pots who come to you to find out what what have you done, Lord. God, help all of us to, to rediscover the beauty of what you've done. Somehow this is a curse word subject. Somehow this is a fighting subject. This is, this is you form lines and you, you pick it and you raise your voice and you get hostile. Oh, Lord, I don't think you were thinking any of that when you made man different than woman. When you gave them different roles, you called them to bring glory to you in unique ways that would be female and that would be male, that would be husband and wife. What a beautiful thing, Lord. It was beautiful. You looked on your creation and said it's good. God, help us to recapture the goodness that's here. Help us to value. Lord, I pray right now in this room, every one of us would be aware. Lord, am I looking to the authority that you have placed in my life? And am I seeking to honor that authority? Or have I given myself permission to exist without recognizing authority. God, for every man in this room who feels like he's the boss, may he read, I want you to understand the head of every man 
is Christ for every man in this room, Lord. Would we be men who take our marching orders from you, form our opinions and our views, cultivate our character, create all around us an atmosphere that is under your authority, that honors your authority. Lord, for every wife who is here, Lord, for women here who, like that first century example, have lived in settings where the authority of men has been, have been abused. They've misused it. They've neglected it. They have selfishly used it. And it has brought harm and discouragement into the lives of women. God, we will need your wisdom. And we will need your help. For this world is fallen and that stuff is real. But Lord, there's a lot simply in this principle for wives to look to their husbands in an authority-honoring way. As you ordained it, it's beautiful in your eyes. those that are young that are here God that they would learn early on in life to look to authority and to honor that authority that authority that makes mistakes that authority that forgets and is neglectful that those would not become reasons to set aside your principles but God that we would honor those who are in authority over us they are a means of grace And that is a means of glorifying you. Because ultimately, Lord, ultimately, there is no authority but yours. And so when we submit to authority, we are submitting to you. Even if the guy wearing that authority is out of step with you. You are glorified. So God, help us in this passage. Help us live in light of this. Lord, I pray for some help and I, just want to, I want to make some time available if you're here this morning and what you heard this morning is really, really hard for you to receive because you have been the recipient of being abused by those in authority. There's no way to overlook that and just say, all right, I welcome this idea. That's going to take some careful steps along the way and some wisdom along the way as well. You may have some really good ideas about protecting yourself in some ways. You may have some bad ideas about that as well. But if you're here this morning, I, I, want, to, I want to open up some prayer time for you. And we're going to dismiss, but if you would like some prayer, like the elders to pray with you, Because for you, putting this on is a really, really hard thing for you to do because you have been abused by people who were in authority in your life. And there's something that God needs to do to draw near to that so that you just don't stay there and you find grace and healing for a real need. So if that is you, 
find the elders and we'll just gather on the front here uh, afterwards to, to minister and care for you. For the rest of us, how are we doing on time? Sorry, Eric. I always call Eric up and I don't leave him any time. Hey, if this freaks you out, would you, would you please do this? I, no one does this. If you freaked out over what you heard, would you come tell me you freaked out? Because here's what people do. It's like, you take all of your ideas that I probably agree with a lot of them. And you assume I don't. And then you'll leave here thinking, this church is wacko. You know, I thought it was okay, but it's wacko. All right, well, come tell me why you think it's wacko. We might actually agree on a bunch of stuff. But, but don't just let this slip into silence and form your own protest in your heart. That, that's, that's not God. Right? That's not how God operates. So if you've stumbled today over something, I can understand why. Just come and ask. Love to hear your perspective on that. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. If you need some prayer, please come up.